cliffcentral.com San Bonani Nonke This is Frankly Speaking This is Rory on the decks Ah, oh, cheesh, what a morning It's been quite frantic But uh, after some gremlins We've got the show on the road um, Welcome again to Frankly Speaking um, Today, once again, flying solo um, Andrew still out of town But that's no problem Because... Uh, as I always say, I've got friends all over. Um, and today, uh, wanted to speak about just a, a very interesting thing. Um, not just in South Africa, and maybe it's even better in South Africa compared to the rest of the continent, but just health and health issues. Um, whenever you hear about, uh, state presidents of Zimbabwe, for example, uh, Robert Mugabe, or you hear about, uh, the president of Nigeria, Buhari, um, when they're sick, where do they go for healthcare? They don't go to hospitals and institutions in their own countries. They tend to fly out and head out to Europe, uh, where they, where they then, uh, where they then get medical assistance and come back. Even right here in South Africa, our president Jacob Zuma, uh, when he was allegedly poisoned, uh, is said to have gone to Russia to, uh, to receive medical attention. So there's clearly something on the go here that the presidents know about our healthcare system that we perhaps don't. Uh, so we thought, you know what, let's have an entire conversation about this and understand uh, what is it going to take. Uh, first of all, what are they running away from, all of these presidents? Um, and then secondly, what is it going to take to transform healthcare in on the continent uh, to a place where we can eventually say that our presidents feel they can use our health facilities. I mean, even in the South African context, um, a, a lot of our, a lot of our government ministers and so on do not use the public health system at all. Um, when they get sick, they go to private hospitals. So these are the people who are supposed to be showing the greatest confidence. They're the ones who control, uh, the health system. And yet, um, when, when the opportunity arrives, they certainly don't use those health facilities. Uh, the Minister of Health in South Africa, Aaron Mutsweledi, uh, has, has said and promoted the idea of, uh, civil servants and even, even ministers and so on using, um, using, gov- using government facilities. Um, the question though is, what is it going to take for these to get to a stage where, uh, they're not just good enough for the president, but they're good enough for each and every person um, on the line today and joining us all the way from uh, from Sierra Leone is uh, uh, Professor Yapanov. Um, uh, yep, is uh, Prof. Yap, if I can call you that. Yep, hi, are you there? Yes, uh, Rory, I'm there. How are you? I'm good, Prof. How are you? Not too bad. I'm actually in Yaounde currently. You are in Yaounde. In- Yes, in Cameroon, Central Africa. Oh yes, sorry, sorry about that. So, uh, Yap is in, is in, is in Cameroon and he heads up, uh, Epicenter, which is the research arm for Doctors Without Borders. Um, he heads up research on the entire continent of Africa. So, just the perfect person to be speaking to this morning. Uh, Prof, I just want us to get into it. There's a lot to get into, but, um, you know, whenever we hear about the worst uh, epidemics and so on They're on this continent HIV AIDS is ravaging this continent We even have Ebola here um, And 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 seemingly Nowhere else We just had It was the Black Plague in Madagascar um, With threats that it might It might move over to, to South Africa uh, 
what's going on? Why is it? Why does it seem while the West is talking about um, uh, missile shields and so on, we don't have the basic health shields that can prevent us from um, dealing with the types of diseases that the rest of the world doesn't seem to struggle with? Yes. Well, I think the first thing first is that uh, we have the let's say the proper environment for all those diseases to to grow. I mean, when you talk about uh, Ebola, for example, you have the forest, we have the connection uh, and the relationship, let me put it that way, with the, the monkeys and all those uh, wild animals. So definitely the environment itself, it's actually conducive. You talk about malaria, where you have all those mosquitoes around, maybe not in South Africa, but in most of other sub-Saharan African countries. So when you look at uh, the environment, you look at also the lifestyle. I mean, if you go to DRC where we had some of those outbreaks of Ebola, people are living in the, in the forest, some of them, and they're pretty close to those animals. So definitely there is a high risk of that those crises happening. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the system, the healthcare system that is ready to respond to do all those outbreaks, though we know that they will come. You mentioned them, Ebola, HIV, tuberculosis, a plague, and then now we are talking about dengue, which again is another mm. outbreak that is starting in Burkina Faso and many other countries. So really we have all those one, but we are not ready. We are not prepared. Most likely because at some point healthcare is not a priority mm. for, our, for our leaders. You've uh, made, you, 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 you give yeah. some example of, of Buari, Mugabe, Zuma, and all those people who will go and have the healthcare outside of the country or in the public in the private sector. What does it mean? Mm. It means that at some point it's not that important. And now we are talking about the rich people. Yeah. For once again, imagine about the large majority. If you go in your village to meet your grandmother, do you think you will have access to proper healthcare in your village? Mm. Most of the people won't. Prof- so what's happened? You may. Yes, good. Yeah, so so before we get into into that, I, I just want you to help us to just paint a picture. Most of us aren't in the health uh, healthcare sector. We don't really um, understand the context as much. So, uh, what's what's going on? If I don't know how how the health systems are rated across the continent, but uh, in terms of just the general state of health, um, you mentioned the fact that. Um, we we have the type of environment that fosters all of these things, but you think about the rest of the world. We're not the only continent where people are still are still live in close proximity to jungles and so on. Um, why is it that Africa, uh, more than all other continents, it seems, is those? I mean, if you think about Australia, um, that is just a just a a zoo of all sorts of things that are just very, very dangerous. You never hear of outbreaks there. Um, if you think about South America, um, a very similar type of situation, you never really hear of these catastrophic outbreaks. So, so is it properly explained to simply say that we live in closer proximity to, to dangerous animals than what the rest of the world does? No, actually, no. The point is that uh, we are more exposed than the other. That's one thing. Okay, but the main challenge is that we don't have the structure. There is no structure to actually respond to those outbreaks. And I, we talk about outbreak, but even leave, leave alone the outbreak. Talk about the, the simple disease. If you go to what we call primary health care, so the basic, the basic you can get if you have fever or whatever. So you just need something simple 
where where we can have uh, a, a simple test that will tell you that you have malaria, TB, or HIV. In many countries, we don't have that. Mm. We don't have that, which means that a healthcare system is failing in most of African countries. By system, I mean, what do you do when you feel that you're not fine? Where do you go? Who do you meet? Mm. If I take an example, telecommunication. If you need some airtime, everywhere around you, you will see someone who is selling airtime for you. Everywhere. But if you need a physician, can you find one around you? It's difficult. It's hard. Mm. And why, why? First, human resource. We may not have enough healthcare professional. We tend to keep the inherited healthcare system from the colonialism, from the US, UK, Europe, and so on, mm. where we'll have all those big hospitals, and we think that that's what we need. But actually, if you start thinking from the village to the city, what is in place to make sure that every single African can have access to a nurse, a clinical officer, or a physician, you will see that it is not there. Yeah. And that's what Ebola showed us. Yeah, but by some accounts, uh, Africa has 24% of the of the disease burden in the world, but only 3% of healthcare workers. So, if 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 we've got this issue around human resources, what's what's the what's the problem? Are we not training enough, or are are, are all the people that we're training uh, leaving for greener pastures um, in the West? I think that is uh, part of the problem, but maybe just a very small part, according to me. Uh, we try to train healthcare workers the way they're trained in Western. You have physician, you have nurse, people like that. Mm. But actually, is it that, is it really what we need? We need to have people who have health, health skills at the community level so that you can actually play in the, on the mass, on the numbers. Just imagine that in every single village you have, now we are calling them community health workers, but we need to empower them more so that at every single level you have those human resources because we don't have the, the money to to train i don't know uh, 1 million 2 million of physicians we don't have that because you need to build university mm. you need to build uh, all, all the school of medicine you need to have the proper the, the, the teacher the professor they are not there mm. we don't have enough as you mentioned some of those will go to the us and so on for greener pasture but actually if you look at it we don't have enough university to train we don't have enough people. And actually, what kind of training do they actually need? Mm. If I am in a village, do I really need to be a surgeon and to be able to do uh, some very complex uh, operation? Maybe not. Maybe what I need at that level is someone who is able to see someone and say, okay, you have fever. This is due to TB. Mm. This is due to malaria at the very basic level. And then that person will screen and say, okay, now you need to go to the hospital or take those drugs and you'll be fine. Do we do we now, have the other, do, do we have the money mm. to pay them though? So we might not have we, we might we might not be able to produce uh, uh, the millions that are required. But uh, if we were to produce those millions, do we have the money? Does do our economies have the ability? I mean, without uh, we know how health funding is in the United States and what a mess it is. We know how how the UK relies on their NHS. Um, uh, but 
on the African continent, we don't seem to have strong uh, healthcare funding models. So even if we were to have those resources, are we able to pay for them? Yep. So you you go to the the question: Is it a priority? And it's not. If it's a priority, then we'll we'll put the fund. If you look at budget of a country and you say, okay, we put um, uh, ten or five percent of our budget for health, for, for example, you're sending the message as compared to many other things. Mm-hmm. And I believe that health can can bring wealth. So if we think that way, then we can actually try to rethink where are we spending money in health. There is a lot of money that is spent in in health. But a lot of it is also Western. You may have heard of uh, some uh, some issue la- uh, last week on Ebola, mm. where uh, six I think it was uh, six billion dollars that were uh, diverted in uh, I think it was in Liberia or something of the sort. So there is a lot of money that that are poor, but that money is not well used. Tell us tell us more what? about the Liberia issue. That was uh, that involved the Red Cross, right? Exactly. Mm. It, it was involved in the Red Cross. So what's, what happened, at, at least from what we, we know now, is that um, the, at the level of the banking system, they were playing with the rate of dollar and something like that and, and the transfer fee, and they managed to divert, I think, six million, no, I think six million or six billion US dollars. I, I, I don't remember exactly the, the figure. But even that, let me tell you, this is just the tip of the, high, the, the iceberg. Why? Because People have created fake NGOs. People have increased the, the the bills. Let's say if I'm renting, I remember when we were in, in Conakry, if you were renting an apartment, let's say for 1,000 euros, then at that time it would be 4,000. Or people can even put 10,000 and the people will pay without even trying to check what is happening. It is true at that time it was hard, but at the same time, people were really taking advantage to divert a lot of money. So this part from the Red Cross is really, according to me, small, according to all the money that has been diverted during those, that, that outbreak. But there was too much money at the same time. People yeah. were generous. People but, were really generous. As MSF, at some point, we have to stop the fundraising. Mm. But if you if you are a government minister and you have to make a choice between funding education and funding health, what would you do? Oh. <laughs> you always have good question, Rory. You know, I think I will have to split uh, to share between the two because they go together. An outbreak is healthcare and education. If people are not able to understand and to realize that something unusual is happening, Ebola started in, in Guinea. People start dying. And no one were considering it was abnormal. They were saying that that was witchcraft and things like that. So poor education. And then health. There was nothing to respond. So really, if I'm the head of a government, I will make sure that education and health are priorities. Hmm. Definitely. So what's happening now? Are we spending that money on, are we spending that money on defense? Where, where is that money going as opposed to, so when you say that we're not prioritizing and you, yet you say that education and health uh, go hand in hand. What is it that you would say we should be cutting down on in order to prioritize health? Well, I, I will start by defense, as uh, as you were talking about, as you mm. mentioned. I think uh, we, we may be putting a lot of money on defense for quite a number of countries that are not affected. Now it's a bit different because you have those in Cameroon, for example, in Nigeria, you have the issue of Boko Haram, so we have to be ready, that one. So definitely it, it has to be also a priority. But still, 
before even going to cutting from one sector to the other, if we try to look how the money that is given for health is being spent, I think we can make a lot, a lot of improvement. Mm, so as we talk so, about rethinking, in what ways can we make those improvements? So the first thing is, should we actually spend more money on uh, building or restoring those uh, existing hospitals rather than empowering the community health worker? That would be cheaper because mm. they need a, a, a smaller level of uh, of skill and so on. So at, at that point, you can have a balance. So if I'm supposed to, let's say, spend uh, a million in workshops on the how to uh, decrease the HIV in Cameroon or in South Africa, sometimes you have those workshops where you bring people, they spend a week and give them Pergium and so on, and at, at the end of the day, you have mm. nothing. Mm. Let's take that money and bring to the community and train the people who actually do something. Mm. That already will be a, a way forward. But at the Beyond that, we need to actually rethink the entire system. Let me give you one example in South Africa, which has actually been a good example of thinking out of the box. In every single village, you have those traditional healers, mm. which we all have in Africa. And in most of African countries, we don't want to include them in the healthcare system. They are on the side. Mm. While those people are the one seeing almost all the patients in the community before they go elsewhere. Anywhere else. Mm. So in South Africa, what they did, some people uh, from CIFI, that's uh, an American company, they decided to give them what we call some point of care to make a rapid diagnosis of tuberculosis. Within mm. two hours, you, you can know whether the guy has TB or not. Wow. And they gave it to traditional healers. So they so don't have to throw they don't have to throw bones anymore. They 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 now conduct a they conduct a, a literal spit test. <laughs> yes, but I guess they do both. You know, in front of you they will <laughs> they will take the bones and so on. And in the backyard they have a small lab, a pretty small lab. They will take your your, your spit up and then they will do it. And they will come and say, yeah, I think you you must have TB. But this is yeah. this is a very innovative way of doing. We know that those people have the mass, the masses. So we we don't have no choice but to involve them. So we need to rethink how how can we integrate those people in the big healthcare system, and how can we rechange the priorities? Who are the people we should train? Healthcare worker as compared to physician, or how can we leverage more money to train more people? And to do what? We have to be very clear about that. So it's really a movement that we need to to start on reinventing the African healthcare. But what do you say to people, I mean, on this fact of uh, traditional healing methods? Um, uh, to what extent are, are our minds colonized by the idea that these things don't work? And Because sometimes what you hear is, you know, people present too late into the healthcare system because they've been uh, going to traditional healers, they've been doing all sorts of things, and only when it's completely late, this is when they present to the health system, but by then it's too late. So how is it then that you, you how, how do you reconcile the two where some people say, you know what, this is just a money-making scheme, um, but then on the other hand, you're saying that you could actually use these people, they're, they're of benefit. Yeah, I. it's an interesting question in the answer is pretty simple. You have bad traditional healers and you have bad doctors. Mm. So mm. you can find who are the good ones, who are the ones who can, we can rely on, who are the ones we can give some label and mm. say those one is a certified traditional healer, is part of our system. Because the reality is there. 
we as let's say the intellectual and all those people believe that okay those people are doing crappy thing mm. but the community the large majority will go there first because they are there mm. where we are not that's the first mm, thing. Mm, mm. And secondly, they take time. They provide uh, whatever they can provide as healthcare. And of course, some of them who are not good will then delay the people to go to the hospital. And those people, unfortunately, we die. We, we've, we've do some study in Uganda and then realizing that a large majority of the children coming to hospital for malaria who will die is because they are being retained at the level of the traditional healers. So we need to go and find those people and see who are the good one? Who are the bad one? And how can we integrate them? Yeah, I, I was talking about uh, the point of care for tuberculosis. We can give them some tool, some tool mm. that they can use. Okay, uh, this is a rapid test for malaria, and yeah. they just prick and you, and you give the result. So we give provide them the tool to take care of our people, not that big ego and fight between you know the Western medicine and the traditional medicine. What were we doing before? Mm. We, were we all dying? I don't think so. <laughs> good, good point. If you've just joined us, uh, this is frankly speaking. We are talking rethinking health in Africa. On the line is uh, the head of Epicenter. Epicenter is the research arm for Doctors Without Borders, uh, Professor Yap Boom the second, uh, a microbiologist and epidemiologist uh, by profession, um, all-round nice guy, researcher. Teacher, so we've got the perfect guy to be speaking to uh, today. So, so Prof, uh, moving forward, you've, so we've touched on a number of things that need to to happen. You've spoken about human resources. We've touched on funding. We've spoken about using resources that are underutilized. So, uh, community health workers. We've spoken about traditional healers. Uh, what else is it uh, that's going to get our health system up on its feet again? Um, and and again, how long would it take to achieve all of this? Uh, uh, because it really does seem like it's the, the the challenge is insurmountable. You guys at Doctors Without Borders have been working on the continent for a very very long time, um, and and we you know it almost sometimes feels like we're not making much progress. Recently, the Minister of Health in South Africa made announcements about uh, uh, our progress on HIV and AIDS, and it wasn't looking good after all of the money that's been invested um, and all of the effort that's been taken. So, uh, you know. Is this problem just too big? Well, Rory, the problem is huge, actually. <laughs> the, the problem is huge, and it's surely not a health problem. Because at some point, you need to involve all the different partners. Because when you talk about health, you talk about economy, you talk about education. So all those people need to bring in board and start a conversation on what and how we can rethink our, our system. But there are some very interesting uh, possibility. The, the first one is technology. If you look at how we w- were working and taking care of our people before, now with all those new tools, you can really leapfrog and improve our healthcare system by providing, using phone, telemedicine. So the spectrum is pretty big. But the first thing first is to acknowledge that we are all failing as smart as those people want to be. Mm. And then until we we acknowledge that and we bring people together, and when I say people, in those meetings you will see the same same people, intellectual professors and so on. No, we need to bring people from the community as well, and those traditional leaders to tell them, tell to tell us actually what is that thing, that the wrong thing that we are doing, and how we can work together. 
to bring a new something new that is really out of the box. The example I, I, I was taking uh, talking with my my fellow here is just imagine that you have you have a, an uncle or someone who likes you came from the let's say the UK let's say 20 years ago and he gave you what this trouser that you really like. And then you still want to keep it, and then you, it has hole everywhere, and you keep on patching, patching, patching it. Mm. That's how our healthcare system is. Mm. We've inherited it. We like it, and we keep on trying to to keep it the way it is. But at some point, you just need to change your trousers, buy a new one. Maybe not even a trouser, maybe a skirt. But yeah, you, but, but that sounds that sounds obvious. So why are we not doing it? So so. Um, is it, is it that governments don't have, so I, I understand you spoke about prioritizing, but is it that, that we don't have budgets up? All of our healthcare budgets are going into maintaining that we don't actually have the budgets to, to start something new because something has to be in place in the interim, isn't it? Uh, while we, we build this new type of system and maybe all of our budgets are being sunk into maintenance. Is that maybe the issue? Yes. So if we keep on doing that, it's also appreciating that we don't want to change it drastically. Mm. Oh, and maybe also we are lazy. Actually, quite a number of people are lazy because the people who think the healthcare system, how many of them are really affected by that healthcare system? Mm. You mentioned when they are sick, what do they do? They don't, they don't, they don't go to the public hospital. They will fly. Mm. So to, to which extent are they really touched by that so that they can really fight for it? Few, actually. Few. Okay, so, 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 so you, uh, you become the president of Cameroon in the next election. Uh, what does radical look like? So if you're going to now make that radical change, what does it look like? Are you going to stop funding, uh, existing institutions and begin to, and begin to divert the funding towards the new system? Uh, what exactly would you begin to do? You know, Rory, uh, we have the election next year. So it's a very <laughs> challenging <laughs> statement that you are putting. <laughs> but first thing first is to bring the people that matters around the table and start the conversation and to say, okay, what is this failing system and what can we do? Mm. And then decide and figure out what works for us, us, us as African and now as Cameroonian. Mm. And it's only that that we, we will be able to do something. But you see and that you're calling for more conferences and you were just saying that, no, we, we should stop with these conferences. Now you're saying we must have another conference before you begin to act. Don't you already know yeah, what's but, wrong? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We know what is wrong, but the people who are attending those meetings and workshops are not the right, the right one. It's mm. about leadership. Mm. Look at what happening, happened in Rwanda. The guy came and managed to change his healthcare system to, in the sense that at least now in Rwanda, you can have access to the basic in, in many places. So it's really about that to say, okay, now I'm going to make healthcare and education as a priority. What does it mean? I want to know how we spend all our money in healthcare. Do we really train and empower the community people? What does it cost to make sure that in every single village there is something for the people when they are sick? Mm. And then we figure out what are the ways. And, and you know, the money is really the money an issue you have. Uh, we say Africa is rising. We have all those all those uh, messages. So there's some money. You have a lot of people making money. We can take on the taxes, we can also look at the African philanthropy because at some point, do we really have to rely only on the government to take off our healthcare system? I don't think so. Mm. I, I think it's really 
a partnership between the private sector, between the public sector, and then the philanthropists can also play. What and about also, what, what about drugs, Prof? Uh, we 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 obviously a big issue is the cost of 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 drugs or medication, um, and and how. Uh, existing uh, IP laws essentially make uh, uh, life-saving drugs uh, very expensive uh, for for African governments and so on. So, so what must happen? Um, on the one hand, we've got these IP laws that need to be intellectual property laws that need to be um, uh, observed, and the rest of the world will not want to play with us if we if if we are going to abuse. Uh, their intellectual property, but on the other hand, people are dying every single day. So, so how do we then deal with this issue of, 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 of drug availability and even just the uh, drug supply chains? Because even getting those drugs to where they're required is also in itself a big issue. Uh, if Coca-Cola can manage, uh, to distribute all of their, all of their drinks daily, what is it that we're struggling with in terms of drug distribution? I like that example, Rory, and that's what I think is going to change our healthcare system. How can we make money to be wherever you have a soda? That's mm. the point. But Coca-Cola is making it because it's making money, so it has a sustainable model. The public health, the, the, the public and the government are not thinking like. Mm. So, just to go back to, the, to your question of drug price, for the major disease. The price may not be an issue these days. Mm. HIV. So people like MSF and many other uh, NGOs has really fought to ensure that the, the price for the ARVs are as low as possible and free in quite a number of countries, mm. thanks to some of the of our partner, the Global Fund, and so on. Hepatitis, for example, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, actually, especially hepatitis C. Those people also have managed to deal, those big manufacturers, you know, India now is playing a huge, a huge role on being able to produce low-cost drugs that mm. are still working, working properly. So I, as per now, for those major disease that we have, we have, we can have access. Novartis, for example, is actually working in, in different African countries where they are reducing the, the cost of the price for drugs uh, dealing with hypertension. Hmm. So people will have access to drugs at a low, lower cost. Now, the other challenge that you mentioned is how do those drugs reach wherever they need? And the entire system, if before you take a drug, you need someone to tell you what you have. Hmm. You need someone to make a, a diagnostic, to take your blood pressure, to whatever. And that, pers- that person, most of the time, is not there. So it's, it's the whole system. How do we make sure that one... We have the people in the community to tell our community what they have in terms of disease. And second, what is that we need? If you go to South Africa, you need ARVs, for example, for HIV. Mm. But if you if you go to Cameroon, you need anti-malarial. So what is that we, we really need? And that's what research and epidemiology can tell us. What are the diseases that you have in different countries and how you can, can you respond to that? And that goes with the leadership, saying, okay, yeah. I'm going to use all those tools to have a great impact. And if I'm president, then that's what I will do. To what extent, and technology. To what extent uh, do we have those research capabilities in country? And uh, to what extent are African countries themselves um, uh, engaging in the research and development of pharmaceuticals? Um, you know, for how long are we going to continue relying on 
um, Western, Western and maybe Eastern providers of, of drugs and medicine when, you know, the diseases are here. So at least we know that we have the problem. Um, so if we just build the laboratories and the capabilities and the knowledge around the problem, we can begin to be the producers of those medicines and begin to, to, to export them to the rest of the world. Yeah. And then you touch another important point. What is research in Africa? What is the contribution of Africa in the research that we do in our continent? It's really low. Mm. If you, I, I'm, I'm doing a, an assessment of looking at that question. And then you realize that in terms of funding, maybe eight, five to eight percent of the research pro, uh, activity that took place in the last five years in different countries on HIV, TB, malaria, and so on, were actually funded by Africans. 8%. Wow. What does it mean that 92% is funded actually by the Western? Mm. So they are, they are answering the question that they think we need, not our question. Mm. So we need to be able to find our own fund and to actually respond to our question. So I've been saying that we have challenge to get fund for healthcare, but now we also need fund for research. And what are people funding research in, in the West? Bill Gates. Mm. And you remember you asked the question about why the the African rich people are called billionaire while the other people are called philanthropists. That's mm. the reason. Mm. So this guy decided he's going to end polio. He's mm. going to impact HIV and so on. So he's putting a lot of money. So why our billionaire, I forgot the name of the guy in South Africa, the, the, the richest. Patrice Motsepe, you mean, but he's not Pat- the richest, but he's the, he's the popular one. Okay, mm. so if if this guy decide to put some money for research to say, okay, this money is for Africans to figure out what are the challenge and what they think will be the solution using research as a tool. That would be so powerful. And we don't have that. You have Dangote, you have all those people who want to buy Arsenal Football Club in the UK. Hmm. Come on. But, but, that money. but, but we also, apart from philanthropy, we have a lot of funds that are looking for deals. So why is it that uh, we aren't Diverting a lot of commercial capital towards research um, is is research just uh, too risky an area? Why why is it that we can't attract commercial funding for research? I think the the first thing first is research remain kind of unknown in our continent. Most of the African researchers will talk to their peers. If I do a research, I will present in a scientific conference, talk to my people. That's not going to put, to move us anywhere. Mm. So. The, we miss the platform where I can go and talk to the guy of MTN and say, okay, you have some money. Those are sort of the issues that you are facing. Can you support us? And then we, they, will be, they will actually be very happy instead of just uh, building a school, some, some small school, and then pitting uh, water hole in many villages. They will be happy to say, okay, we are putting money in research that is going to change the continent. But we like those platforms. Mm. And then let me use yours. So that uh, if any South African person who is listening to, uh, to us mm. is willing to support research, not only in South Africa, but within the continent, that then we will be really happy to work with them. Mm. And there's a lot to do. You have countries like Niger, one of the poorest countries, because it's a, a poor country, French-speaking. There is nothing putting money there. There's no putting money for research there. No mm. one. Mm. Even from the Western. They will put in country they know where they speak English, South Africa, Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, and so on. But what, but what about the others? Yeah. Uh, uh, so prof, it's a call. Let, you know, some people might, might be thinking that, uh, as I call you prof, that uh, you just sit 
uh, and read books all day <laughs> and you're not on the front lines. But you were intimately involved in the 2014 West African Ebola outbreak. Uh, take us to the front line and, and how you got involved, how you literally got your hands dirty um, in, in, in making sure that the, that situation is arrested and that we don't lose any more lives. Just take us, because a lot of us may, will never have that experience. Um, so once the news started, where were you and, and how were you involved? Take us onto the front line. So this is my story. Mm. At, at the time, I was working in Uganda where I was leading our research center. And then I was on my journey back to Cameroon where I was taking some new responsibility here, trying to build some research. And then I got that call from my director. The outbreak has started. It was going on. And you have some people in the field as MSF and so on. And he called me. It was an afternoon. I was at home. And he told me that, okay, uh, we need you to go to Guinea to work on the vaccine trial. There is a vaccine that uh, has some uh, data in terms of safety, but we really need to assess that so that we can provide a tool to MSF, to WHO, to the world, a mm. tool that can actually help to stop the transmission. And I asked myself, okay, people are running away from that country because of Ebola, and now this guy is asking me to go there. Mm. <laughs> and I say, okay... <laughs> I look at my wife, I say, oh, what am I going to tell her and my daughter as well? Mm. But then I say, I'm African. So if I don't go, who will go? Mm. So I say, okay, I, I will do it. So I talk to my family. I say, okay, now I need to go and lead that activity in that country and then to figure out how we can implement and test the vaccine. Use the vaccine at the same time to stop the outbreak and get, get, get as much data as needed. So but I, I the, went the vaccine there. wasn't approved, right, at that time? Yeah, actually, it was still an investigative product. The only data we have is that the vaccine was safe because it had been tested in human in different countries, but actually we have no data on its efficacy, mm. its ability to stop the transmission of the disease. Mm-hmm. So we needed to go there in Guinea to set up a trial, what we call a phase three vaccine trial, clinical trial, which means that is the highest level in terms of research. And you need people who are well-skilled, well-trained, and so on. And we have like a week in Conakry to recruit people. That my, was my first contact with the challenge of human resource. Mm. I was interviewing people, 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 people. And then, which is, it's a French, French-speaking country. And it happened to me to talk to someone in French and he could not understand what I was talking about. And that is the person who was supposed to be part of the study. So we really have to screen a large number of people to find the 100 people or more who will be actually involved in, in, in the study. So that's what we need. We have doctor, we have nurse, we have logistician. And our role was actually to look for healthcare workers, the first-line workers, the people who are actually involved in the response, taking care of the patient and uh, carrying the bodies and all those ones to provide them the vaccine. Mm. And then to be able to follow them, let, let's say for, for six months, to ensure that nothing wrong is happening, but also that they actually have the adequate response. And uh, surprisingly, where you think that people will welcome you as coming with a tool, it was in many cases the opposite. There was a lot of challenge with the Ebola business. All the NGOs were accused to spread Ebola so that they can get more money. Wow. So, 
Just imagine that at the time people are thinking like that. Hmm. You come and say, look, guy, I'm going to give you a vaccine, so I'm going to actually put something in your body. Hmm. And they say, no, how? You are going to put Ebola in us. So you have to do a lot of explanation, a lot of discussion, so that we can eventually increase, uh, include in our study around 10,000 people. We are doing that together with the World Health Organization. Yeah. Wow, so people so, people are resisting even as you try to help them. They 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 don't trust you. They don't trust you. They don't. <laughs> wow. They really don't. And actually, one of our cars was burned in wow. in Guinea because they say no, 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 no. You you won't come here because you are coming to bring the disease. So we have to organize uh, meetings. We have to go to the radio. We have to use a lot of the media. And the worst thing is that it was also the year of election in that country. So the opposition played a really bad role and saying that those people has been sent by Alpha Conde, they're coming to kill you. So if they come to vaccinate you, refuse. Wow. Jeez, politicians, so uh, politicians can really be a piece of work. How, how so yeah. given that setup, um, we constantly hear of these conspiracy theories, uh, doc around, uh, you know, diseases being manufactured in the West or wherever and then being, being spread in places like Africa. Um, to, to what extent is that true though? I mean, we do know that, um, a lot of the advanced militaries have, have biological warfare, uh, capabilities and within these capabilities is the ability to create, uh, all sorts of, uh, diseases or issues and to, and to spread them. Um, so to what extent do, is there merit to this concern that, you know what, actually these things are being spread by, by, by other forces and, and we're simply being used as guinea pigs and in some state, because where do you test them, right? You test them on people. Um, is, is there any truth in this, uh, from what you've seen? The, the first thing when we talk about drug or vaccine, for example, there is no way you can test a drug in an African country, if he has not been tested before in the country where the manufacturer is registered. Mm. So the first thing is to test it in, for the Ebola vaccine, for example, it was first tested in the US and in Geneva and so on to make sure that it is safe. Where did they find the Ebola one, victims in those countries? No, they don't find the Ebola victim. They find anybody who is healthy and oh, they wow. give them the vaccine to figure out whether it will bring something like that's oh. what you mentioned. Wow. Is that vaccine going to cause Ebola? Mm. You first have to prove that it, it, it doesn't in their own people. Mm. And once that one has been proved, then they can go in Africa to do the same mm. and to, to actually look if the vaccine or the drug works. Okay. So that's the first thing. Mm. The secondly, the, the conspiracy thing, it's a nice story. I mean, we always want to believe that uh, all what is happening to us is because of someone. Mm. So HIV has been manufactured and then sent to us. But then if, if and if it was the case, what stop you? What stop us from stopping the transmission of the disease? Yeah. Are, are also those white people responsible of our behavior? Mm. I don't think so. Mm. So though it, it, it is understandable, we, people are playing a lot of that, of the fear and also things that are very difficult to explain because when you go into the detail of the viro- virology and so on, few people understand. So it's easier to say, okay, actually those people in the factory just make the, the, the virus and take us to Africa. I don't believe on that. I don't have evidence, but uh, we can say even if it was right, 
what is that we are doing to make sure that it works? What should we do to make sure that it stops? Change our behavior. Build our healthcare system. And we'll be able to respond to whatever is affecting us, whether it's sin or not. Let's let's talk about uh, lifestyle diseases as we speak about behavior. Um, um, in in more of the developing parts of the continent, uh, lifestyle diseases are becoming a bigger killer than 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 any other disease. Uh, things like uh, hypertension, sugar diabetes, and so on. Um, to, to what extent are you seeing this on a continent-wide level, the impact of this, and uh, what is causing it? Because, you know, one can argue that uh, we didn't have such a lifestyle disease epidemic uh, decades ago, but all of a sudden we are now seeing a greater incidence of lifestyle diseases. So what is causing it and uh, and what needs to be done to, to curb it? Because we're already dealing with things like Ebola, HIV, and so on. We don't need an extra burden of avoidable diseases. And it's the rich people uh, who are who are who are creating this burden of avoidable diseases so uh, to what extent uh, uh what can be done to 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 curb this to curb this issue so first, first thing first so there is a real increase of those diseases but an increase what does it mean it means that you have the proper thermometer when the temperature is raising and then you have a thermometer to assess and measure it then you say okay it's hot so now we have more and more tools to, di- to make a diagnosis for hypertension and diabetes. So definitely the number are also increasing as compared to the past mm. because of the tool. That's one. But also because of the reality. We talk about, about the, the lifestyle. You know, when I talk to my father, for example, he used, he's telling me that when he was young, he would walk to school five kilometers or eight kilometers. Mm. I have my daughter. She doesn't walk to go to school. She jump in the car, we drop her, and then that's it. Mm. So in the way we are working, I mean, you will be on the, on the show, you will do all your activities, you will be in the office. And then when do you exercise? That one. So mm. second thing, the food. We used to have, um, I want to say less fat, fatty food because of the poverty in, in many countries. So if you go in, into the village, you, you will barely find some oil. They mm. will just steam everything they're eating and they will be, it will be healthy, not because they want, but because they have no choice. Oh, we have choice and we all want to eat tasty food. So we'll put some oil, we put some spice, we put some salt, salt, which is one of the, 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 the highest thing that can bring hypertension so when you look at all those small things you can think about that but now on top of that we have the stress Mm. people believe that we are more stressed than we used to be and this is possible when you look at uh, the the life today and the communication i mean you have your phone you have whatsapp you have all those things that are taking all your attention you have a lot of things so you have you can be more stressed and that stress increases the probability of you getting one of those diseases what can we do what can we do education how can we educate all the community the rich the poor everyone on what are those behaviors Eat less salty food, for example. That's, mm. that's the first thing. Try to but walk you every day. You say Eat people, you educate people, and the people who are having these diseases are the most educated in society. They know, but they don't want to change. So what is it going to take? Should we be, I mean, we're seeing sugar bans um, being introduced in certain parts. We're seeing higher taxes um, on these things. Is there more that can be done? Because people don't listen, and then it becomes the burden of the public health system. True. So... 
what what is going to be that at some point you have to make a rule in the banning some of those things in many, many places but at the end of the day people do what they want because you have to also acknowledge what are the limits as a government if someone really want to eat those fatty thing and sugar and so on that also is right now what is important is to make a contract hmm. if you have to take an insurance for example as they are doing now in the US your insurance is based on your your body factors, you will look at your blood pressure, they will look at your weight and all those things. And the, the more healthy you are, the less you pay. <laughs> the more mm. unhealthy you are, the more you, the pay. More you pay. So yeah. at some point, we, we may come to, to, to something similar. If you want to go in bad behavior, then you have to pay more and you pay your all your all expenses. Mm. Maybe that's something that we, we can think about. Yeah. Prof, it's really uh, difficult. If, we're running out of time and I want to squeeze in two last questions. Um, the first one is there's all this controversy and hullabaloo around uh, vaccinations. Um, to what extent should we be continuing to vaccinate or um, are they as bad as people say they are? There's, they've been tied to things like autism and so on. And one imagines that, uh, you know, vaccines uh, have helped us to basically rid ourselves of things like polio and so on. So uh, this this has been a new thing that has been introduced recently that no, vaccines are the cause for a lot of our problems. What should we be doing about vaccines? Rory, there is a price to pay for everything. And we have to find the price. If you look about like vaccine, we know that vaccine has a huge impact on our life today by preventing all those diseases. However, we also know when we do those trials that they have severe adverse event that will well, that will happen to one person out of I don't know twenty thousand or a million mm. even. But there's one person. So at the public health level, it's small. But imagine that your kids, it's that actual person who will suffer from that. Mm. You won't think that, okay, my kid will, will die for the benefit of the community. No, my kid, my kid died and then I don't want, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Mm. So that is the point. Vaccines are good. They are great for the community. But once in a while, someone can be affected by the, the adverse event of that vaccine. Mm. So what, what do you do? Are you going to, Protect the individual at the, at the risk of the uh, of the community. It's really a challenging question. Tough, According to tough. me, as a public health specialist, I mm. will say we need to continue to vaccinate people. Tough and ethical to find question. It is tough, mm. but by improving also the vaccine, we we may be able to reduce and reduce and reduce the the, the side effects. Mm. Prof, now in in our last minute, I mean, this entire conversation has been about rethinking health in Africa. We've touched on a lot of different topics. What is it that we haven't touched on that you feel is another important part of us rethinking uh, healthcare, particularly public healthcare within the African context? What should we? What else should we be doing? And which countries do you think are showing signs of uh, doing it right? I think you have two countries. I will name first Rwanda, which is doing right in many things, including health, and uh, Ethiopia. Ethiopia they, they managed at some point to involve more and more the community. So the question now is how can we use those two different examples to see how they can be translated in different countries. And we need for that, we need a platform. We need to create a platform where you can bring together the public health uh, 
expert. You can bring the people, uh, the corporate who can put some money. You can bring the philanthropist and you bring the community. People who will tell us what are they need. And then we rethink together. I say less conference, but that will be the last one. That will make a <laughs> powerful change. <laughs> uh, Prof, uh, thank you so much uh, for, for this very insightful conversation. There's evidently a lot that needs to be done. And as you say, the first thing is to get the right people around the table um, and to begin to deal with the situation. I, I just don't know. I wouldn't know where to start. I think that's my big concern uh, with all of the issues uh and and where they are, it's it's just you know where do you start? Do you start with funding? Do you start with the people? But if you don't, if if you don't have the people, then you you can't exactly administer drugs. So it's just a it's just a big mess. And I'm glad that smart people like you are the ones who have to figure this out. Um, and particularly big-hearted people like yourself. So, uh, Prof, thank you so much for joining us all the way from Cameroon, and uh, and good luck with your future endeavors. Thank you very much, Rory. And I know you'll be part of that rethinking. Uh, absolutely. Run for president uh, of Cameroon uh, or do something <laughs> like that uh, so you can make these changes. Thank you. Thank you I very much. Uh, so, well, that's it from us. Um, another show done. Uh, interesting thoughts on rethinking healthcare in Africa. There is obviously a lot that still needs to be done. Um, the big question, I think, for you and me is uh, if we're not involved in the healthcare system, can we please just stop being a burden to the healthcare system um, by doing things that are necessarily avoidable? Uh, use a damn condom, for example, uh, so that we're not having to deal with yet another person with HIV and AIDS when it could have been avoided. Uh, take care of those lifestyle issues around the way you eat uh, and exercise so that we're not putting an extra burden on our health resources, which are very limited as it is. Well, that's it from me. Uh, we'll chat again next week. Uh, catch the show uh, on cliffcentral.com. You can also uh, tweet us uh, any of your thoughts around the show at Rory Shabalala. Ciao, ciao. This is cliffcentral.com.